Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter of Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I am going to cover Galatians 3.15 through the end of the chapter, which ends at verse 29. Our context is this. In the previous portion of Galatians chapter 3, the first part, Paul has talked about justification by faith, one of the central themes of his gospel. He has called the Galatians foolish. He says, you foolish Galatians, you started out i.e. in justification, with the works of the law. No, you didn't. And now you're going to, you, you started out with faith, and now you're going to t- continue, i.e. in sanctification, with the works of the law. No, you need to have faith in sanctification also. So the b- whole theme here is law versus grace, law versus grace. And now in particular, in this section, we're going to talk about how, we're going to talk about law versus promise and how the law is inferior to the promise The promise is superior to the law. The promise is that which was given to Abraham of a covenant that would bless all the nations of the world. That's faith amongst the Gentiles. The promise to Abraham, that's superior than the law of Moses, which was given to Moses. So we start in Galatians 3.15. Paul says this, Brothers, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to even a human covenant that has been ratified. So the human illustration he uses is the covenant. Now that Greek word for covenant is deatheke, and it is variously translated as covenant and sometimes as a will. It works either way here, and, and it is ambiguous. There's one thing I don't like about languages. Sometimes languages are not as specific as others. I remember in China there's one word for burp and there's one word for hiccup. For you're trying to tell somebody, oh, I'm hiccuping, I can't stop hiccuping. You tell them that in Chinese, and it means either I am burping all the time or I'm hiccuping. And so I finally would start asking Chinese people who spoke very good English, tell me what this is, and I would, and then what this is, and then I would burp. And I said, give me the word for that. And they couldn't do it because their language did not distinguish enough. Well, the Greek does not distinguish between covenant and will, whereas English very clearly does in law. There's a huge difference between a contract, a covenant, and a will. Different rules apply to them, as a matter of fact. But not so in the Greek. Well, here the Holman Christian Study Bible translates even a human covenant that has been ratified. No one sets aside or makes additions to it. Okay, let's assume we have party A and party B. They make a contract. That's it. Unless there's mutual agreement and they both voluntarily add or remove terms from the contract. One party cannot unilaterally do that. Two of them can, but... So it means no one, no one individual can set aside and make an addition to a human contract, a human covenant, because once it's done, it's done, and it's enforceable at law. Or if it's a will, same thing. Once the will has been probated, nobody can change the terms of a will. The testator's dead. The will has been probated. The probate court says, okay, we're going to enforce the stipulations of this will, and, and that's it. Nobody can change that. Either way, it works. The NIV Study Bible says Paul's probably referring to a will here, not a covenant. The NIV Study Bible also adds the Septuagint. In the Septuagint, the word diatheke was widely used for the covenant between God and his people. And, of course, that's not going to be changed either, is it? So it doesn't matter either way. It's not going to be changed. And so what his point here is, I'm, I'm going to give you an advanced preview of what he's, going to, what he's aiming at here. He's going to say the promise that God gave to Abraham is not going to be changed. And that promise was by faith, because Abraham believed it and was counted to him as righteousness. Therefore, that that promise, which is appropriated by faith, it ain't going to be changed by no Mosaic law. That's not going to happen. Now, in verse 15, Paul calls the Galatians brothers. Then verse 1, in chapter 3, he called them fools, you foolish Galatians. John Gill says he might be trying here to mitigate and soften his chastisements, acknowledging that they were not too far gone to reform their thinking. Well, that's nice. Paul's, Paul is, he's mutton Jeff. You know, he's, he's sour and sweet. He's tough on them. Then he's, after he bruises and wounds them a little bit, then he puts some salve and some balm on the wounds, and then he bruises them again. He did that with the Corinthians over and over again. So that's kind of the way he was. So we go to verse 16, Galatians 3. The promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. All right, that's what we need to remember this. Promises, Abraham. Let's put those two together. And his seed, not only to Abraham, but also his descendants. Seed is descendants. The NIV has seed here. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. All right, the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. In Romans 4.13, we read this. For the promise to Abraham, or his descendants, that is his seed, that he would inherit the world, was not through the law, 
but through the righteousness that comes by faith. And that's Paul's whole point here in Galatians as well as in Romans is the promise of justification does not come through the law. Romans 9, 4, and the law, of course, is the law of Moses. Romans 9, 4, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The promises came before the law and the temple services. The promises came to Abraham. So let's look at the Old Testament promises to Abraham. The way I summarize these, I'm not going to give you all the verses. There's a lot of them. But the way I summarize them is L-O-B, lob, land, offspring, and blessings. God promised Abraham a land, which is physically fulfilled in Israel, spiritually fulfilled in the church. He promised Abraham offspring or seed, as some people say, or descendants, as some translations say. I just like offspring because it makes my lob acronym work better. He promised them offspring, that's physical offspring, Jews all over the place, and also spiritual offspring, Gentile, believing Gentiles and believing Jews, the seed of Abraham, as we'll talk about later. And he also promised Abraham blessings to the whole world, land, offspring, and blessings. All right, now, to whom did he make these promises to? To Abraham's seed. Now, Paul is trying to get the people in Galatians to get off the idea that all those promises came to many people to seeds, I eat all those Jewish people back then, Abraham's physical descendants, because he says the word seeds in the promise is not plural. It's singular to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So he says the promises are fulfilled in Christ, not in all those Jews running around the promised land. And to show that, to show where he's Quoting from Paul, well, let's look at Genesis 12:7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your offspring. Now, the KGV has seed there. I will give this land to your seed, singular. The NASB note says, literally, it's seed, singular. So the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your seed, to your offspring, your seed, singular. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So the land, of course, was going to be given to the land spiritually fulfilled was going to be given to seed, Jesus, spiritual fulfillment. Genesis 13:15. for I'll give you and your seed, or offspring, forever all the land that you see. Genesis 24, 7, NASB. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, that's Abraham speaking, to your seed, literally, in a NASB note, the NASB New American Standard Bible text says to your descendants, but the note says literally seed. To your seed, I will give this land. All right, so there's, so we don't get lost in the weeds here. The purpose of that is to show that the Old Testament promises were fulfilled in, by Christians who were justified in Christ. That was the whole purpose of the promise to Abraham, not, not the land of Israel and all that, all, as nice as that was, but the, that was a mere type of that which is the anti-type which is the church of Jesus Christ, Christ and his descendants. Here's a quote to that effect. John Gill says, It's primarily Abraham's spiritual seed that Paul is talking about here, quote, chiefly of a spiritual nature, though all the temporal blessings of God's people come to them in a covenant way and by virtue of the promise. For godliness has the promise of this life, that God will verily feed them, withhold no good thing from them proper for them sanctify all their afflictions, support under them, and never leave nor forsake them. But the promises here intended principally are such as these, that God will be their God, and they shall be his people. The promise of Christ is a Savior and Redeemer of them. There's the emphasis, is on the spiritual fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, which is in Christ. And as we'll see in just a little bit, those promises come by justification. Those promises come by faith. The promises are of justification being declared righteous before God. That's the real promise that was made to Abraham so that Abraham could have children. And those promises come by faith, not by the law. Now, one side point here that's often made, oftentimes the side point obscures the main point, but the side point is look at Paul's high view of Scripture. He is basing his argument here that the promises to Abraham were not mainly aimed at physical Jews, plural, but one seed physical descendants, physical seeds, plural, Jew, Jewish people, 
But the promise of, to Abraham was mainly fulfilled in one seed, which is Christ. So he makes a distinction between seeds with an S and seed singular with no S. He's making a doctrinal point, an extremely important doctrinal point, based upon the text of Scripture that he has, and it's based upon the difference of one letter. Paul was no liberal, folks. He took the Scripture seriously, and he quoted it to that effect. Now, there's an interesting opinion here, which I've never seen before, and that is the word seed does not just refer to Christ. Now, Paul makes it sound that way. He says in Galatians 3.16, the promise comes to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Well, that seems like it explains it, but Jameson Fawcett and Brown, John Gill, and Adam Clark all say that it's not just the head, Christ, who is the head. It's also the body of Christ. Because Paul is trying to show how Christians get saved, not by the law. And so when he talks about one seed, he's talking about Christ and his body, church included. The mystical body of Christ, as they say. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, but let me give you some quotes. Here is a quotation from Adam Clark. And as we know that promises of justification, etc., could not properly be made to Christ in himself, hence we must conclude his members to be here intended. And the word Christ is put here for Christians. It is from Christ that the grace flows which constitutes Christians. Christians are those who believe after the example of Abraham. They, therefore, are the spiritual seed. Christ, working in and by these, makes them the light and salt of the world. And through them, under and by Christ, are all the nations of the earth blessed. So Adam Clark very clearly says that he believes that the seed here that Paul's referring to is Christ and his church, not just Christ by himself. Now, here is another quotation, and unfortunately I've lost who this quotation is from, but it's one of my commentators. Let me read it. God makes his covenant of promise with one seed, Christ, and embraces others only as they are identified with and represented by Christ, including his people, who are part of himself, the second Adam, and head of redeemed humanity. Galatians 3.29 proves this. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Interesting idea there. But at any rate, let's don't lose sight of the main point as we emphasize that seed-seeds distinction. What is Paul's point here? Well, Jameson Foss and Brown say that Paul is saying this. Look, if there were many seeds, there would be one more than one way of salvation. But there's only one seed, and that's Christ. Only one way of salvation. There's not one way of salvation for each different seed. There's not one way of salvation for Gentiles, another for Jews. There's not one way of salvation for seed before the law and one way for those. There's not one way of salvation for seed before the law came and one way for salvation, another way of salvation for those after the law came. We're all saved by one point, one seed, Christ. And to put it another way, let me summarize this again. Paul is saying, look, it wasn't seeds that the scriptures talk about that gets the, the blessings of Abraham, the promises of blessing from Abraham, it wasn't seeds, plural, that got that, a, a Jewish seed and a Gentile seed. No, it was one seed, Christ. All who were in Christ received those promises. And it's by, and the promise came to Abraham, and that was before the law. So that means the promises of Abraham, the blessings, go through Christ to his people, to his church, not through the law, because Moses came after the promises to Abraham. We go now to Galatians 3.17. Paul continues, and I say this, the law which came 430 years later does not revoke a covenant that was previously ratified by God and cancel the promise. Now remember, Paul's already said even a human covenant, you can't change the terms. And how in the world are you going to change the terms of a covenant made between God and Abraham 430 years before Moses ever showed up on the scene? It's not going to happen. So again, the whole theme is the promises to Abraham are superior than the law of Moses. And the promises to Abraham include blessings to the whole world, which Paul is going to say is, is justification for those who believe. That's how blessings to the whole world come about. Now, that number right there, 430, has uh, engendered a whole bunch of Ph.D. scholarly type discussions because in some places in scriptures it says it was, it, the law came 400 years later, and here it says 430 years later. Paul's probably quoting Exodus 12, 40 through 41. The time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that same day, all the Lord's divisions went out from the land of Egypt. So there's your 430. But in other scriptures, we have 400 years. Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be foreigners in a land that does not belong to them. 
they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. And then in Acts 7, 6, this is Stephen's given a history of Israel before he's stoned to death. God spoke in this way. His descendants would be strangers in a foreign country, and they would enslave and oppress them 400 years. All right, to reconcile those two numbers is extremely controversial. How do you do it? There must be a million different attempts to reconcile it because it is so incredibly complicated. It is way over my head. This is a job for Ph.D. New Testament scholars, of which I am not one. The NIV Study Bible had the simplest way to answer it. 400 is just a round-off figure for 430. So when Stephen said it was 400 years, he just rounded off 430. That's, that explains it for me. That's good enough for me. At least that's good enough as I'm going to talk about it because I can't go any deeper than that. Now, we'll make one point here that the 400 years is talking about from Abraham to Moses. It is not talking about how long Israel was in Egypt enslaved, how long they were enslaved in Egypt. Because remember, Abraham and his descendants lived in the promised land as wandering nomads for years before the children of Israel ended up enslaved in Egypt, before Joseph went down there and got enslaved in Egypt. Lots of time. Most scholars say, it's about, I don't know, they disagree with this too, but I've seen the number 215 a lot. There were 215 years in Egypt, not 430 or 400, and, or 400 years in Egypt. So we need to explain that. When, I, when Paul quotes Exodus 12, 40 through 41, it says that the time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. Well, the time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was not 430 years by all accounts. Everybody agrees. All the scholars agree. No, it was not 430 years. Well, Adam Clark says, how do you clear it up? If you look at the Samaritan Pentateuch, he says it's a translation problem or maybe a textual problem. The Samaritan Pentateuch says this, Now the sojourning of the children of Israel and of their fathers, in other words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which they sojourned in the land of Canaan and in the land of Egypt was 430 years. So the Samaritan Pentateuch adds the time of the patriarchs before, before the twelve were enslaved in Egypt. Before Moses, it adds the time of patriarch, and it also adds to Egypt the land of Canaan where they were. And that, that makes perfectly good sense. The Septuagint does the same thing. The sojourning of the children and of their fathers, not just the children in Egypt, but also their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which they sojourned in the land of Canaan and in the land of Egypt. You add the land of Canaan and add their fathers, there's no problem with that. So that takes care of that problem. The 400 and 430 years, though, that's uh, that's a different ball of wax. Which I'm just going to assume it's rounded off number. and it, it has absolutely nothing to do with the main point, which is the promises to Abraham came first. It was a deal, a contract, a covenant between God and his people. You don't change contracts with God and his people, and so a law. 430 years later, the Mosaic Law is going to come and change the deal that God made with his people, which is belief, justification by faith. Uh-uh. Paul's saying, that can't be. And why is he saying that, by the way? Because remember, in the book of Galatians, he's fighting Judaizers who say that we've got to keep the law of Moses to get saved. And Paul's saying, oh, no, you don't. You, keep, you receive the promises of Abraham by faith, not by keeping the law of Moses. That covenant Abraham was previously ratified by God, and, and the law cannot cancel the promise, he says in verse 17. We go to verse 18, Galatians 3. For if the inheritance is from the law, and of course it's not, if the inheritance, that means our spiritual inheritance of salvation and justification, if that inheritance is from the law, it is no longer from the promise. But God granted it to Abraham through the promise. He told Abraham, you are going, your offspring will be a blessing to the whole world. Blessings to the nations. And that didn't come from the law. It came from the promise, the promise to Abraham. So there you have that great contrast between the law and the promise, law and the promise, law of Moses, promise of Abraham. Promise of Abraham wins, law of Moses loses. Now here, of course, Paul is talking about spiritual inheritance, it sounds like to me, for the inheritance is from the law. It's not, he's not really talking about temporal blessings for physical Israel. He's talking about spiritual inheritance from those promises to Abraham. There were physical fulfillment in the promises to Abraham. I mean, after all, God did give Abraham's descendants a land, the land of Israel. There's two particular verses where it says, and, and every good promise came to pass as, as during the time of Solomon, even during the time of David, I believe, you know, the... the from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates, Israel Israel had possession of it. So, yes, the promises were physically fulfilled, but that wasn't the main point of them. Those were just meant to be types of the antitype, which is the fulfillment in the church, in, the, in Jesus' spiritual kingdom of God. 
Paul, of course, has similar teachings on justification by faith in Romans. And here's a verse in Romans 4.14. He says, if those who are of the law are heirs, in other words, if those who are keeping the Mosaic law, if that's how they inherit their heirs, if that's how they inherit salvation, well, faith is made empty. The faith that Abraham had is made empty, and the promise to Abraham is canceled. It's over. But that's not so, because you can't cancel a deal that God makes with his people. God made the promise to Abraham. That's it, buddy. You don't cancel that. No Mosaic law is going to cancel that. Galatians 3.19, why then was the law given? Now, it sounds like Paul's been dissing the law, jumping all over it, saying it's terrible. No, he was not. But just to be sure that people don't get the right idea, he says, but now the law, of course, does have its purpose. God gave the law. He wasn't just flapping his gums, to speak anthropomorphically, when he was given the law, he was very serious about that law. The law was just and holy and good. Okay, so now Paul is going to balance out what he's saying by saying the law is good. It's not the promise, but it is good. Galatians 3.19, why then was the law given? It was added, added to the promises of Abraham. It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made should come. The seed to whom the promise was made. That's either Jesus or Jesus in his church, the new covenant era. And so... God had to add this law because of transgressions, because the old covenant people of God were about to destroy themselves. That's the first part of Galatians 3.19. Let's just stick there for a minute. Now, Paul says the law was added. Why? Because of transgressions. It was not added to justify Christians. It was added because of transgressions. Now, there's two reasons why these transgressions might have made the law necessary. One is to restrain the people civilly, and I think that's what it means, because these Jews that didn't believe, they were going to kill each other, rape each other, rob from each other, and just absolutely create a mess out of their society unless Moses cracked the whip and said, no, you got disobedient sons, we're going to stone you. You want to you wanna defame the Levitical ritual cultists, if you will, of the Old Testament. You want to you want to pollute the worship of God and not keep my commandments holy? You're going to fry. So you want to have a rebellion against Moses and destroy the, the nation of Israel from whom the Messiah had to come? You want to do that? You're going to have the ground separate into a big crack and you're all going to fall in there like Nathan, Abihu, Abihu Korah. Korah's rebellion, all that stuff, all in the Old Testament, was necessary to keep the Jews from destroying themselves. Same thing, wipe out the pagan tribes around you. Why? Because you're going to intermarry with them, and they're going to pollute you with their Moloch worship and their sacrificing their children to, to on, on altars. So we've got to restrain that because of transgressions. It had to be added. It wasn't added to get you anybody saved. It was added to keep the people of Israel together from disintegrating. I think that's the main reason it was added. There is another way you could look at that. The law is added because of transgressions. Now, the law stimulates sin in the believer. So the Mosaic law could be added because of an addition of transgressions that it wants to do in people to show them that they're sinners, to stimulate, stimulate sin in the people so that they realize that they needed a Messiah to save them from their sins. Romans 5.20, first part of the verse says this, the law came along to multiply the trespass. Multiply the trespass. Romans 5, well, I just quoted that, Romans 5.20, the law came to multiply the trespass. Now, how can the law multiply the trespass? Well, I can think of three ways. Number one, the law can stimulate our knowledge of sin so that we know that we're sinners. Number two, the second way the law can add to our transgressions is it can stimulate our practice of sins so that it makes us sin more, which, of course, when it does that, that means we need salvation more. The third way the law can stimulate a believer is it can stimulate our accountability for sins. We can know now, oh, I see the law. That means that when I steal something, I'm liable for it, and I'm, I'm guilty, liable for punishment. So three ways the law can, stim- can, can multiply transgressions. It can stimulate our knowledge of transgressions. It can stimulate our practice of transgressions. And the law can stimulate our accountability for transgressions. So maybe that's what Paul was talking about. It was added because of transgressions. In other words, it was added because it needed to increase the idea, the accountability for transgressions in believers. Now, that's true. What I just said about what the law does to stimulate and increase, to multiply the trespass in believers, is absolutely true. But I'm not sure that's what Paul meant here. He meant it in Romans 7, but here it just makes more sense to me to say that he added it because he needed to hold Israel together until 
until Jesus and his church came along. The seed to whom the promise was made. Notice the connection of Jesus and the, and the promise. The promise is from Abraham. The seed is Jesus. There's your connection. Abraham, Jesus, faith in Jesus, not Moses and Jesus. I hope all good Reformed people who love talking about Moses, 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 Moses all the time, because if you don't, you're an antinomian, you're an antinomian, you're an antinomian. I wish that they would pay more attention to these verses. Now, of course, the Reformed covenant theologians are wonderful about justification by faith and not by the works of the law. They're absolutely impeccable on that doctrinal point. But then when they get to sanctification, they constantly talk about, you've got to work, you've got to strive, you've got to... You gotta, you gotta do it, and if you don't, you're passive. Well, Paul clearly says you began, you foolish Galatians. Did you begin with works, and now you're planning to continue with works? Continuing with works means are you planning to be sanctified with works? Paul is talking about sanctification here every bit as much as justification, and it doesn't come by keeping the law. I don't care how many Reformed Presbyterian Covenant theologians say that. I refuse to believe it. It just, it just can't be. Of course, we're not passive. We keep the law of Christ. We're not antinomian. We keep the law of Christ. We do the things the Lord wants us to do, and that's much better than the law of Moses. Moses said, don't murder. Jesus said, don't get angry. Moses said, don't commit adultery. Jesus said, don't even lust. Now, the last part of Galatians 3.19, Paul says this, the law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I think, what in the world has that got to do with anything? Why does Paul just throw that in there? Well, we'll talk about that in just a minute, but now let's talk about this idea of the law coming into effect through angels. Where does it say that? Well, it actually does. Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, he said, The Lord came, I'm not sure who that he is, I think that's Moses. Moses said, The Lord came from Sinai and appeared to them from Seir. He showed them them from Mount Paran. These are, these are mountains near Mount Sinai. Seir is, Mount, is a range where Mount Sinai was probably, except it's to the north, I think. Mount Paran, those are mountains around Mount Sinai, let's put it that way. He showed them from Mount Paran and came with 10,000 holy ones. Those holy ones are angels. He came with 10,000 holy ones with lightning from his right hand for them. So there the law is associated with 10,000 angels. Acts 7.38, he is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our ancestors. He received living oracles to give to us. So Stephen, as he's being executed, giving the history of Judaism, he mentions that an angel spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. Acts 7.53, you received the law under the direction of angels, and you have not kept it, Stephen tells his Judaistic persecutors, under the direction of angels. Hebrews 2.2, 2, for if the message spoken through angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, dot, dot, dot. Psalm 60.17, God's chariots are ten thousands of thousands, or tens of thousands, thousands and thousands, the Lord is among them of the sanctuary as he was at Sinai. In other words, he's among angels just as he was among angels at Sinai. So, there's no question about it. The scripture says the law was given with angels, and Paul quotes that right here. Now, the next question is, why? Well, before we get to that, let's talk about why angels were coming and were given the law at Mount Sinai. These are some minor points. Some say they would just merely observe the law as it was given, just kind of like for a for effect, if you will, for witnesses. Some actually say the angels actually fitted the stones for the writing upon them, got the tablets together because they had all that law to be written down on stone. Some say they actually did the writing on the stones. I don't know. I think that's speculating beyond any point that evidence can prove one way or the other. Ah, but here's the main point. Why did Paul mention that the law was given through the, medi through the mediation of angels? The answer is simple. Angels are inferior to God. The law came to came from angels to Moses, but the promise to Abraham came from God directly to Abraham with no angels interposing. So Abraham's revelation of the promise was superior to Moses' revelation because Moses had to deal with angels. I know sometimes he did speak to God directly, I know, but, but nonetheless, a lot of it came through angels. Abraham, it was directly from God, so therefore Abraham's promise is more superior to Moses. And that's why Paul mentions that. Now, he also mentions that the law of Moses came through a mediator. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. And of course, Moses was the mediator. Again, why did Paul say that? Well, before we go to why he said it, let's read the verse in Deuteronomy 5.5 5, where it says that. 
At that time, I was standing between. That means standing between is mediator. That's what, a mediator is one who stands between. At that time, I was standing between. This is Moses speaking. At that time, I was standing between the Lord and you to report the word of the Lord to you because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. Now, the main point. Why does Paul mention that the law came from a mediator? Because law coming from a mediator is inferior to a promise coming directly from God. Law coming from a mediator from Moses to the people is inferior from the promise of God going directly to the people through Abraham. That's why he did it. Galatians chapter 3 verse 20. Now a mediator is not for just one person, but God is one. Now this is another verse that doesn't make any sense when you read it on the surface. Let me give you a quote from Adam Clark. This verse is allowed to be both obscure and difficult. And it is certain that there is little consent among learned men and critics in their opinions concerning it. Well, but we're going to give it a stab. We're going we're gonna to have a try at it. Here's two options as to why Paul says this. Remember, Paul is contrasting Moses and Abraham. Now, this first option is from the NIV Study Bible and Jameson Fawcett and Brown. I think it's very reasonable. Paul is contrasting Moses and Abraham. Now, the law was a two-sided covenant between, between Israel and God, and Moses was the mediator. Now, the fact that a mediator is needed shows that there is alienation between the two parties. And so, therefore, the mediated law in the case of the law of Moses is inferior. So we should not expect justification to, be, to come from Moses. And that's John Gill's view also. The promise to Abraham, on the, other side, on the other hand, is a one-sided promise from God to Israel where no mediator is needed. This is what I said in the last verse. So Moses should be forgotten now in the New Covenant age. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say the fact that Jesus is also a mediator does not cut against this view that Abraham had no, the promise had no mediator because Jesus is one in both nature and office with God and man. So he's not really a mediator. He's man and he's God too. He's not mediator in the sense that Moses was. All right. So if that's f true, then Paul in Galatians 3.20 is saying, now a mediator is not for just for one person. And since Moses was a mediator, that means there were two people involved in the law, Israel and God. But God is one person. He doesn't need a mediator. And so therefore he is one. In other words, one without a mediator. He's by himself without a mediator. And since he is, doesn't need a mediator, he can talk directly to Abraham without going through a mediator. Therefore, the promise of Abraham is superior to the law of Moses. And I think if you take verse 20 with verse 19, run those two together, and you'll see that, that that's what Paul is doing. He's, again, trying to prove that the promise to Abraham is superior. The mediator-less promise to Abraham is superior than the law, which the mediated law which came to Moses. Now, there's another option as to what Paul means in this verse. Let me read it again. Now, a mediator is not, just, is not for just one person, but God is one. This is Adam Clark's view. He says that when Paul says that God is one, he means that God is the one God of all humans, including Gentiles. Moses wasn't a mediator for Gentiles. He was only a mediator for Jews. But God is a mediator for everybody, and therefore... The deal that God has with the Gentiles, which comes through the promise of Abraham, the blessings that go all throughout the world to the Gentiles, there's no mediator there. God is the one God. He doesn't need a mediator. And so he takes care of both Gentiles and Jews. So God is one. That means he's one God for Jews and Gentiles. But a mediator is just for one person, that one person being the Jewish people. And therefore, God's promise to Abraham is superior to Moses. Now that's that's getting a little out there, if you ask me. I don't really think that's what it is. But let me give you some quotes from Adam Clark. Two good quotes. Quote, Moses was the mediator of one part of Abraham's seed, viz. the Israelites. But of the other seed, the Gentiles, he was certainly not the mediator. For the mediator of that seed, according to the promise of God and covenant made with Abraham, is Christ. Here's another quote. But this mediator, Moses, was only the mediator of the Jews, and so was only the mediator of one party to whom belonged the blessings of Abraham. But God, who made the promise that in one should all the families of the earth be blessed, is one, the God of the other party, the Gentiles, as well as of the Jews, seeing he is one God who will justify the circumcision by faith, the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcision, the Gentiles, through faith. It's Adam Clark quoting the 18th century scholar Whitby. That's a hard verse, folks. 
but I think I've explained it to my satisfaction anyway, is you need a mediator. The law needs that. That makes it inferior to a promise because God made the promise without a mediator straight to Abraham, and Abraham's blessings go not only to the Jews but to the Gentiles. Moses' blessings only went to the Jews, but Abraham's promise goes for all the Gentiles, all the world, and therefore the promise is better than the law. The promise of Abraham is better than the law. We go to Galatians 3.21. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that was able to give life, then righteousness would certainly be by the law. If, there, if Moses had been able to give life, well then, sure. Then the law would be contrary to the promises to Abraham. But the law can't give life. It's not able to give life. It only condemns. It slays. It kills. It doesn't give life. If it gave life, then we would have our justification, our righteousness by that Mosaic law, but we don't. That doesn't mean the law is contrary to God's promises. It has a different function. God's promise to Abraham was for salvation. The law was to civilly restrain the rebellious Jews to keep, as a theocracy, and it was to promote sin in believers so that they could see that they needed a Savior. They needed to inherit the promise of Abraham, if you will. We go to Galatians 3.22, but the scripture has imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Notice the promise there. That's the promise to Abraham. It comes by faith in Jesus Christ. There's the connection between Abraham and Jesus. That's why we're Gentiles, believing Gentiles are children of Abraham. The scripture has imprisoned everyone. That could be the law in particular, as Gil puts it, the, quote, killing letter of the law has imprisoned everyone, everything under sin's power. I'll go along with that. It could refer to the whole scripture as a whole. The God who's revealed in that scripture has revealed everyone under sin. I don't think it, the distinction all matters that much. There is no particular scripture that Paul is citing here that the scholars can find. He's just talking about scripture in general. It says all mankind is lost under sin. Now, Adam Clark has a good metaphor here. If you're in prison, that means you're in jail waiting for sentence to be executed. So we're all unbelievers who are on this earth. They haven't accepted Christ as of yet. They're in prison. They're in prison by their sin, and they're waiting for the final imprisonment, which is hell. So they've got to get out of prison if they're going to avoid being locked up forever. We go to Galatians 3.23. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law. Now, this faith now is talking about the faith in Jesus, not Abraham, because because we were confined. the law came before Jesus, so he's saying before this faith in Jesus came, we were confined under the law, under the law, under the law of Moses. We, as we Jews, Paul's Jewish, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. That pretty much says the same thing that verse 22 says. We are confined under the law because the law reveals and stimulates sin. I've already read you some passages from Romans 5 that show that. But let me give you the, the classic scriptures in Romans 7, 8. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, through the law, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. So in other words, we see the law and we say, hot dog. Sin says, hot dog. The law's just been presented to Dan Trotter. He's not supposed to do this, and I'm going to make him do it. <laughs> so don't try to get sanctified or justified through the law, folks. That's the worst mistake. That's the worst career move you could ever make. Because if you do that, you will stay imprisoned. Until faith comes which sets you free, Jesus said he came to set us free, right? Free from that confinement under the law. Free from being imprisoned to sin and to death. Paul says the same thing in the next chapter, Galatians 4.3. He says, in the same way we also, when we were children, were in slavery. It means in children means under when we Jews were under the Mosaic law. He calls that childhood. When we were children, were in slavery under the elemental forces of the world. That word elemental forces is stoichia in Greek or some form of that. I don't have the Greek in front of me, but I remember it. And it it's always used in the New Testament to refer to law. So he's saying we were slavery under the law, under the law. By the way, in English that the elemental forces when the at the end what is it, Second Peter two, I think it is, where it says that the earth will be burnt up, the elemental the elemental parts of the earth will be burnt up. That word also means law, which and from that, John Owen, the famous Cambridge Puritan scholar in the 16th century, he says he thought that that meant the destruction of the law, the destruction of the Old Testament rabbinic order, not the planet Earth getting burnt up. That's an opinion I happen to believe, so I just thought I'd mention it there. It's absolutely, it's an absolute rabbit trail. We go to Galatians 3.24. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. Now the metaphor here is a Greek word. 
what is it, pedagogus, pedagogus, I can't remember the Greek word, it comes, the English word is pedagogue, uh, and that is someone who led a Greek school child from his home to his place of education. The purpose of that pedagogue was to protect the child, and I was listening to a Greek history podcast, it was very interesting, it was talking about pederasty in Greece, you know, the Greeks were very big about having little boys, beautiful boys, so they could have sex with them. So they could guide them and lead them kind of like a Boy Scout. Ooh, that's not a good metaphor. Boy Scouts actually got in a lot of trouble with that kind of stuff. And in fact, they're about to go bankrupt if they haven't already because of lawsuits involving that kind of thing. Well, the Greeks made a virtue out of it, not a vice. And so one thing that these guardians had to protect these little schoolboys as they took them to school was keep the pederast away from them so they would not be seduced. So it was a protective thing. So the idea here is the law is a protective thing. It keeps us from destroying ourselves until Jesus comes. Then when he comes, we can be justified by faith. Now, when it says that the law is our guardian, many people misinterpret this verse and they say, see there, while I as a Gentile believer in the 21st century do not believe in Jesus, the law is my guardian until I come to Christ. Oh no, that's not what it means. Paul is talking about those under the Mosaic Law. And the Mosaic Law has been gone for over, what, 2,000 years? It's not talking about we today are under any kind of law, under the Mosaic Law. Most people today are not operating under the Mosaic Law. That's for sure. That's, that's, I mean, most Jews don't operate under the Mosaic Law anymore. But that's what Paul is talking about. Now, what are some implications of this erroneous view that the law is, is watching out for us until we get saved in Christ? Some people say... We need to preach law to people so they would be convicted of their sin. Now, John Zins has got a great article on this, and I don't have it in front of me, but John Zins, of course, was very early in the Reformed Baptist movement. He's, he, he was one of the seminal theologians that talked about, that established New Covenant theology. I know John Zins personally, and unfortunately, he's a feminist, so we can't all be perfect, can we? But at any rate, he has got this great article where he talks about, show me where in the New Testament that anybody preached the gospel to somebody and tried to put them under any kind of law. And I thought about it, and I thought about it, and you, you can't find that. They didn't do that. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean Ray Comfort's wrong in doing that? Zinz's article was aimed at Ray Comfort, who does preach the law. Well, in my opinion, if you don't talk about the Mosaic Law, but you make an application to the Law of Conscience, the Romans 2 Law of Conscience, which every Gentile is under, all of us under today, even though we're not saved in Christ, we all have a conscience that operates in us. I don't see anything wrong with pointing that out to people, because what does salvation mean? It means salvation from sin. And if, you, if somebody doesn't think he's a sinner, he's not going to think he needs to get saved, and therefore he's not going to accept Jesus. So what Ray Comfort does, he said, you ever stole anything? You ever shoplifted anything? You ever been mad at your mother? You ever lied? And, of course, everybody says, yes, well, then you're a liar, aren't you? You're a thief. And he convinces them that they're a sinner. And I see nothing wrong with that, to be frank with you. What I don't like is after you get saved, and then people say, you've got to use the law to get sanctified. Paul, again, let me say, in Galatians, Paul told the Galatians, you foolish Galatians, you began with the law. Did you begin with the law? And now you're trying to finish up with the law? You're trying to complete your walk of salvation with the law? You're trying to get sanctified in the law? Are you a fool? Are you crazy? Don't do that. And so you got to be careful. So anyway, I, I would give a lot of latitude to people who are preaching, who try to convince people that they're sinners by trying to put them under the law of the conscience before they get saved. i got no problem with that. In other words, I'm not sure I agree with Zenz's article. I'd have to read it again. But I do know this. If that's true, that we need to convince people that they're sinners by preaching the law to them, the law of conscience, you're not going to use this verse to back that up. You're going to have to find another verse because this verse is talking about the Mosaic Law was our Jews, not Dan Trotter and Sammy Smith and John Doe. It's the Jews' guardian until Christ came along. So let's get that one straight. There's the Greek word I was looking for, pedagogos, is the Greek word that means a tutor. And every study Bible says this law that is a pedagogos is a tutor. The pedagogos was more a babysitter than a teacher. And likewise, as I said earlier, I'll say it again, the law was like a babysitter for the people. It protected them. It kept them from destroying themselves by putting the fear of punishment on them to restrain them from committing more sins. Even though it stimulated a sense of sin and made them more accountable, it also frightened them with punishment to keep them from hurting themselves. So it was a tutor that way, a guardian that way, a pedagogos that way. Galatians 3.25, but since that faith has come, that faith in Jesus has come, we are no longer under guardian. It's over, folks. 
the law of Moses and Kibbutzki. And he didn't say, oh, we are no longer under the judicial law and the civil law, the ceremonial law. We're no longer under the civil law. We're no longer under the ceremonial law. But we're under the moral law of Moses. Did he say that? Can you find one place in the Bible where he says that? And yet you will hear Reform Covenant theologians say that five million times if you read for about two days. The Bible never says that. It says, you are no longer under guardian. The law of Moses is kaputski. We are now under the law of Christ. We listen to his commands. And if the law of Christ incorporates the law of Moses, if Jesus or Paul the apostle or any other apostle quotes Moses as to the effect that we are under that today, well, that's fine. But it's not because it's Moses. It's because it's now under the law of Christ that we obey it. Galatians three twenty six through 27. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, he just sums it up. For you all, you all... You all, in other words, no Jew, no Greek, no slave, no free, no male or female, you all. That is not all without exception. That means all without distinction. All groups are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And the main groups he's talking about is Jew and Gentile. Paul is saying, I don't care whether you are Jewish or Gentile, you got into the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ like a garment. Now you put on something, you're covered with it. For example, in Romans 13, 14, Paul says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, be completely covered with the Lord Jesus Christ. Make, make no plans to satisfy the fleshly desires. Isaiah 61, 3, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise. A garment covers you. And so he's saying, cover yourself with praise. It's a great metaphor if you think about it. So Paul says, put on Christ like a garment. Be covered with Christ. You don't need Moses to be covered with Christ. Put on Christ. You're all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how you got to be, had to be a son of Jesus Christ. So now that you're a son, put on Christ like a garment. Now he says, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, that sounds like he's singling out some people who have been baptized into Christ and some people who have not. I don't believe that's what he means. I believe he means every last one of you. As many means everybody, without exception in this case, everybody's been baptized now, you can find exa examples of unbaptized believers, for example, in Acts 19, verses the first six verses, I think it is. Paul runs into people at Ephesus who have not been, who have been saved, they're believers, but they haven't heard of the Holy Spirit yet, and they haven't been baptized in water yet. So, yeah, you can find that. How about the thief on the cross? He never did get baptized. Paul is making a general statement here. If you believe, you put on Christ like a garment. Why? Because the, the typical action of early of, of new christians is to get baptized so he's making a general statement you get saved you get baptized now there are exceptions to that but in general you get baptized in water so if you've been baptized in water you've been baptized into christ which means into the person of jesus into union with christ because you've been saved the baptism doesn't do that it's a, it's a symbol a reflection of what you do when you get saved and so then you put on christ like a garment so i think that takes care of that little problem in case somebody got hung up on that Notice one other point in verse 26, for you are all sons of God. He doesn't say sons and daughters of God to satisfy the feminist. He just sons of God. But of course he means daughters too. Galatians 3.28, which is our next verse coming up, there's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. So he's including women in the, that word sons. And back then they didn't have a bunch of screaming, howling feminists talking about how what, what a male chauvinist you are because you didn't mention women. He just said, you're all sons of God. And he was very clear to talk about who sons of God were in the next verse. He included women. He didn't bastardize the language to satisfy the feminist. Now he says that you're a son. Well, what is a son? A son is an heir. Sons inherit. As the NIV Study Bible says, through adoption into God's family, the believer has all rights and privileges of an heir. Here's some, he's going to talk about that in the next chapter on the next audio, but let's also look at Romans 8, 14 through 17. All those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. Again, sons and daughters. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Now, of course, Christ is... An, an heir. He's the, he inherits salvation. He is a son by divinity. We are a son by adoption. So therefore, we're brothers. He, of course, is divine. We are not. But we are adopted into the family. And that, God, in the scripture, uses family language to talk about how close we are to the God that created the universe, how much he loves us as a family. And that's something you can't beat. 
when 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 either non-Christians or Christians understand how much God loves them, that's when the gospel starts moving because people want that. They're sick and tired of being stomped on and ignored and treated badly. What is all literature about? People sinning against other people. What are all movies about? What are all newspaper articles or internet articles about? People screwing one another one way or another. Well, God, he accepts us and loves us as sons. And then he says, not only are you my son, I'm going to give you a big fat inheritance when you die. Well, not only when you die, but also in this world too. And that's love, folks. We go now to Galatians 3.28. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, what Paul is getting at, as he emphasizes unity here, is that these Judaizers who he's fighting in Galatia, uh, in the churches of Galatia, these Judaizers are splitting the church up, those who are circumcised and those who aren't. And so when Paul is talking about unity, he wants to bring together the two factions that the Judaizers are trying to create, and that's Jew or Greek. That's the most important faction he's dealing with. While he's at it, he throws in slave or free. Economic distinctions don't matter either. And gender distinctions don't matter either, male or female. You all get saved in Christ Jesus, not by keeping the law. Doesn't matter. Now, this idea of no distinction between Jew and Greek and the idea that we are one body, not split up into Jew and Greek, is everywhere in Paul's writings in Romans 10:12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, since the same Lord of all is rich to all who call on him. No distinction between Jew and Greek. 1 Corinthians 12:13. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Ephesians 2, 15-16. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. One new man, folks. No Jew, no Greek, no two, no two old men, but one new man. Made of no effect the law consisting of commands and regulations, which is exactly what he's saying in Galatians. The law, forget it. It's the promise. Verse 16, Ephesians 2, he did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross and put the hostility to death by it. No hostility anymore between anybody in the body of Christ. We're one body. Colossians 3.11, in Christ there is no Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all in all. You know, these social distinctions, people love to talk about that, you know. Constantly, the identity politics and all that kind of stuff, how we all going to be one, of course, they end up tearing each other to pieces as soon as something goes wrong. If I go to a church now, I'm in the in South Carolina, and a lot of the people in the church are military, and they're, and two of them, the pastor's actually, he's from New York City, and he's black, and then there's a Long Island cop, ex-cop, retired cop in the church. He's Hispanic, and I just love hearing these people talk about how great Trump is. It's, it's unbelievable. Not that, that, not that you have to be in favor of Trump to be a Christian. I don't mean to say that. But it's just interesting that people of such diverse demographic identities can even agree on something as controversial as Trump. And the only reason is, is because they're Christians. Now, of course, they agree on a lot of, and disagree on a lot of things too, but the point is everybody likes each other. They love each other. Now, one point about Galatians 3.28, when Paul says there's no male or female, oh, feminists love to jump on this. I'll never forget a missionary son. He was going to Trinity Seminary in the early 70s, and that was the time when the new evangelicals were trying to show how cool they were, and they were trying to be relevant, and they were talking about nuclear war and poverty and how we we're going to fix everything by having big government programs and all that. Of course, I was dumb enough at the time not to realize what was going on. I just assumed that Christians didn't believe stupid stuff like that, but they did. Gary Norris got a great book that he wrote about how Westminster Seminary was doing the same thing at the time. Had one professor at Westminster that believed in abortion. He finally saw the light at kicking and screaming. But at any rate, these people are still around, evangelical leftists, they call them. Well, anyway, one of these prototype leftists, a missionary kid, was talking to me one day, and he was talking about feminism. And, of course, as you might have gathered, I don't like feminism. I think it's an affront against manhood and womanhood and against the way God created us male and female. And so I was griping to him about something that I had encountered there at Trinity Seminary in Deerfield, Illinois. And this guy brings out this verse. There's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. And I said, my friend, this verse has got to do with salvation. It hasn't got a thing to do with who you marry or what your economic role is, your functional role in society. is not one frippin' thing. 
And he wouldn't buy that. He just wouldn't buy it. And I finally said, well, you know what that leads to? If there's, if there's no male or female, men can marry men and women can marry women. Now, at the time, that would be considered unheard of because that was in the early 70s, 1970s. And now, of course, as feminism continues to take its toll upon civilization, now we've got men marrying men and women marrying women, and it's encrusted in our law. Total unrighteousness, total perversity, total sin written into our law because people misinterpreting what Paul says here. Where are you, evangelical leftists, as the culture becomes more and more antichrist and more and more godless? Where are you? Are you out there preaching evangelical feminism? Well, lots of luck when your family falls apart and when your church falls apart. Lots of luck to you. Now, back then, of course, Paul was operating under a different system. He's operating under rabbinic Judaism. Now, rabbinic Judaism was opposed to women, was very opposed to equality of women in all kinds of things. The Old Testament law and the oral law that was added to it had made great distinctions between male and female, uh, but among the Jews, so so John Gill makes his quote here, quote, among the Jews, the males only were concerned in many things, both of a civil and religious nature. No female might be heir to an inheritance with a male. Females had no share in the civil government nor in the priesthood. Males were to appear three times a year before the Lord, and according to the oral law, women and servants were exempted. The mark of circumcision, of course, the sign of the covenant made with Abraham and his natural seed was only upon the males, of course. And then here's a quote from Adam. That was from Gill. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. Quote, between the privilege of men and women, there was a great disparity among the Jews. A man might shave his head and rend his clothes in the time of mourning. A woman was not permitted to do so. A man might impose the vow of Nazarite upon his son. A woman could not do this on her daughter. A man might be shorn on account of the Nazarite that means the Nazarite vow of his father, a woman could not. A man might betroth his daughter, a woman had no such power. A man might sell his daughter, a woman could not. In many cases, they were treated more like children than adults, and to this day are not permitted to assemble with the men in the synagogues, but are put up in galleries, where they can scarcely see, nor can they be seen. Under the blessed spirit of Christianity, they have equal rights, equal privileges, and equal blessings, and let me add, they are equally useful." Now, here's the other extreme, you know, golly, the, the two sexes. I, used to, I tell people, you know, dealing with romantic problems, marriage problems, whatever, I said, you know, things would be so much simpler if God had just made one sex. But he didn't. He made two, and there are two ways that you can, that sinful human being can mess that up. One is the feminist way, which I just said now, that there's no difference between men and women, and women can be just like men, and men can be just like women. What's the point of having two sexes if they're all going to be the same? On the other hand, you can make the distinctions between the sexes that are gratuitous. They don't mean anything. Now, of course, Jesus had a, God had a reason for making distinctions in the ritual law in the Old Testament because men were supposed to be the leaders, and so and they had more responsibility and such and such. But a lot of this stuff that was added by the, the rabbis was just nasty. And, well, what's the example? That, the famous quote is that. <laughs> Jewish rabbi was saying, oh, God, God, thank you that you did not make me a woman. You know, stuff like that. And so that was the other extreme. This is the extreme that Adam Clark and John Gill are referring to. Remember, these guys are writing in the 19th century. Christianity has done a lot to uplift the status of women. I mean, women can inherit property now. You know, divorce laws were made to protect women. Of course, now the feminists are saying there's no difference, and so we don't need to protect women. But, but originally, you know, the Western civilization, which was influenced so much by Christianity, really empowered women. There are lots of people have written on that. I just mentioned that so that in case you ever hear a feminist or any secular person saying, oh, you know, Christians just make women slaves. Nonsense. Remember, it was women that went around with Jesus. It was women that was at the resurrection. The majority of the Christian church today is women, especially in China. You're trying to tell me women are so stupid that they want to embrace a Jesus who hates women? That's stupid. Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. There's the connection, the promise of Abraham, and then you're Abraham's seed. That means you belong to Christ. Heirs according to the promise. Remember when you say Abraham's seed, there are four seeds of Abraham. There's two natural seeds. That's the sons of Isaac who are Jews, the sons of Ishmael who are Arabs. That's not really who God, Paul is concerned about here. He's talking about if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed. There are two spiritual seeds of Abraham. There's Christ himself, and then there's the body of Christ, believers in Jesus. So he says, you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed. That's why he can say in Romans 4, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, and you, and, and I forgot the rest of the song, and I am his, 
I forgot how it goes, but basically the song says that I am a son of Abraham. I, a Gentile, am a son of Abraham. Not because I'm, I'm of Jewish blood or because I am of Jewish, that I don't, not because I do Jewish ethnic stuff or eat Jewish food. It's because I believe in Jesus. Now, we need to take care not to confuse the physical and spiritual seeds of Abraham. This is what happens if you do. The physical seed does not necessarily inherit the spiritual promises of salvation. If you say that just because you're a non-believing Jew, because you are a Jew, therefore you're going to inherit a kingdom in Israel since God established in 1948. Well, now you're talking about physical seeds, but Paul's not talking about physical seeds. He's talking about spiritual seed. There are lots of Jews who didn't believe in God or Jesus. They're not going to inherit a darn thing unless they believe in Jesus. But on the other hand, if a physical Jew, a natural Jew, a genetic Jew, if you will, if he believes, then he's part of Abraham's spiritual seed right along with you and me and all Gentiles. He is a believer in Christ. He has greater and better promises. And he's a believer and he's of Abraham's seed, not by virtue of his Jewish ethnicity or race, if you can even define what race is. Not because of that. It's because he believes in Jesus. On the other hand, spiritual seed does not inherit the physical promises to the Jews. I am of the spiritual seed of Abraham, but I'm not going to get the land in Israel. That's not part of my inheritance. The church is a spiritual kingdom, folks, not a political one. All you dispensationalists out there, you might want to contemplate on that a little bit and really meditate upon it, and it might change your life. Now, Paul says, if you belong to Christ and you're Abraham's seed. There's certain logic to that. It's very logical that Christians are Abraham's seed. Christ is Abraham's seed, as we know from Galatians 3.16. Christians have put on Christ. Therefore, Christians are Abraham's seed. It goes from Abraham to Jesus to Christians. If you want to follow that through the last part of Galatians 3, you will see that. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with chapter 3. When we look at Galatians 4 in our next audio, we will look at what it means to, be, to have received the promise of Abraham, the promise of faith, what it means to be a son, what it means to be an heir. I hope you tune, stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.